Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Mr. Frankie Manning. Rest in peace. Episode 85 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. We talk about music-related films, which does include musicals. On the other end of a Skype connection, I have my two great friends, my two colleagues from Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. And from Bath, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. We're here to talk about the 1941 film Hell's a Poppin'. And in this episode, I assure you, anything can happen. What we're going to do now is we're going to go and play the trailer, and then we'll be back to talk all sort of absurdism, and who knows where we're going to go with this. You're listening to See Here. That's the first taxi driver that ever went straight where I told him to. Oscar! Will someone please stop that woman from yelling Oscar? Oscar! Thank you. <laughs> this is hell's a poppin'. <laughs> Listen, buddy. For three years we did hell's a poppin' on Broadway, and that's the way we want it on the screen. This is Hollywood. We change everything here. We got to. Why? Okay, Cardi. What's this? I made it for Woody, Act Three, when they make him a knight. I know, but what are these for? Coat of arms. We smear it to get out of those smocks. Take them off, you imbeciles. Look, Rasputin. Shorty the butler gave us this room. So don't you think you're making a mistake? Ah! 
Hereafter, I'll answer my own questions. There's a picket fence of moonlight bars And a shingle roof of April stars And shelves of spring in crystal jars It's heaven for two Watch the birdie, we'll take a can of camera shot. Watch the birdie, come on and give it all you've got. Watch the birdie, just look around and pick a spot and hold it. I've hungered for you so. Do not pretend, Katusha. Tonight is ours, and it shall live forever because you're a woman and I'm a man. A man and a woman. (laughs) Look, Peppy, I'm warning you, get out of here. Such passion together will make beautiful music. Oh, Satan's on a tear, hell's a poppin', they're screaming everywhere, Satan's turn, all and bottom bell, anything can happen and it probably will, hell's a poppin', and there's a rumor now, you'll be Welcome back. You're listening to See Here 85, and we're talking about Hell's a Pop and the 1941 film released by Universal, which seems very, very strange to me. We'll get into that why. The director was one Henry Potter, H.C. Potter, as it says in the titles. It was written by Nat Perrin and Warren Wilson, although what does written mean in this film? I don't know. I'll discuss it with you gentlemen. Uh, it stars Ollie Olsen and Chick Johnson, who'd written this originally for a Broadway production. Martha Ray, who I confess I originally thought it was Judy Garland, but we'll get into that. Misha Auer, Elisha Cook Jr., and for a few short minutes, Shemp Howard, who I think this might have been pre-Three Stooges. This is a musical, so it does qualify as a see here film. All right, I'm going to run by you guys the IMDb plot. See what you think. Olsen and Johnson, a pair of stage comedians, try to turn their play into a movie and bring together a young couple in love while breaking the fourth wall at every step. Yep, technically true, but it tells you nothing about the spirit and absurdity of this film and its subversiveness. So, Tim, this is your pick. I got to ask, when did you first see the film? It completely is in your wheelhouse from what the sort of films that we normally talk together about. But when did you first see this? I saw this film um, actually in the middle of the night at an all night film festival. It was about, it came on at about, I'd say, 3 a.m. or 3 30. And before you even know about How's the Pop, and you have to know that this is a film that's going to hit you like an espresso enema. I mean, this is a film that's going to like just perk you right up and it's it was the perfect film to put on in the middle of a night where people start to fall asleep and people start to uh, get a little bit drowsy in the theater and then this comes on and all of a sudden everyone was just wide awake i mean the truth truth be told i'm not a fan of musicals but this is something that's above and beyond and this uh hell's a pop and for the time it came out, all things considered, 1941, this is a film that is about another 30 or 40 years ahead of its time. We'll get into it, but I just knew at one point I really wanted to, to talk about this film and some of the reasons why it kind of pisses me off. Bernard, Mr. Stickwell, 
Senior Sticky, was this your first time watching Hells Are Poppin'? Uh, yeah, it was. Obviously, you know, I was aware of it. I've heard of it uh, and its reputation, but this was a first time viewing for me, yes. And, well, Tim is certainly right when he says it hits you like a freight train. It's uh, those first 10 minutes I was thinking, geez, I don't know if I can do this for the <laughs> This is just insane. But it does, it changes up. The pace changes and the, um, we'll get into it. But uh, certainly those first 10 minutes, so whilst are sort of indicative of what's to come, they are not exactly what you get. So it does, you know, the foot comes off the, the gas a little bit, which uh, which I was thankful for. Everyone's always thought that it was the Marx Brothers that were so unhinged and off the chain. But then when you see this... This is kind of like the Marx Brothers on a little bit uh, methamphetamines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I did read something where someone had suggested that the best way to watch this film was while you're on some substances. Would you agree with that, Tim? Oh, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Definitely wouldn't hurt. I think it depends on the substance. I wouldn't want to be on anything too up whilst watching this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's one thing that I think, well, before we, we, we get really into the depth of the film, what's interesting, like you said, Morris, was, you know, Hell's a Pop and actually started as a Broadway production. And I think actually it's in still regarded in the top 100 of all musicals of all time, Broadway productions. I think they actually, at the time it finished, I think they ran over something like 1,500 shows mm. with Ole and Johnson with this production. To that point, apparently it was the longest running Broadway production. Right, ever. right. But it's difficult. You think it's difficult to do a Broadway production, but to take that Broadway production to a film, and especially a production like House of Poppin', it's a beast unto itself. There's no record that I can tell of whatever the content was of the original stage production, apart from a song list. I've seen that there's a song list of what was in the original stage show, and none of them are in the film. So I'm suspecting that when it came time to do the film, as we get in that very meta moment in the first 10 minutes, of the film they throw everything away from the stage production and just keep the spirit and absurdity and the subversiveness of the film i believe that one of the few things that they brought from the stage production into the film was that guy walking around with the plant calling out mrs jones mrs jones and watching the plant grow that running gag and apparently even in the stage production once everyone was coming out into the foyer after the play was finished he was still walking around the foyer with this big plant calling out mrs jones mrs jones i was going to say that it's funny to me that this pair of comedians chick johnson and ollie olsen now i haven't seen any of their other films apparently they made like another dozen films or something like that but Everyone knows who Laurel and Hardy is or who the Three Stooges or Abbott and Costello or, as you mentioned before, the Marx Brothers were. And the Marx Brothers films also started as stage productions. But right. it seems unusual to me that Johnson and Olsen, who had the most successful Broadway production ever to that point, no one remembers their name, I'm sure, outside of diehard film buffs you know the average person doesn't know their names and i'd never heard of them until you brought this film to us the only people that they actually ported over from the production to the film was olsen and johnson and whitey's lindy steppers who were actually the dance group in the most famous element of this, of this film I was going to make a slightly snide comment and say possibly the reason that they're not remembered um, is yes. that they're not good. Is that a little harsh? Yeah, possibly. 
Uh-oh, folks, welcome to Ishtar the Conversation, part two. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. I just want to counter something here. We know for years, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope and the Road movies, everyone knows about them. Or at least, you know, most people have even a casual association with older cinema will know those names. And sorry, Frank Santa Padre, in the small likelihood that you're listening to this, I've never cared for Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, all those road films. I think we maybe spoke about that in the Ishtar episode. I've never found them funny. Olsen and Johnson, much funnier than those guys. I can't stand Hope and Crosby. Oscar! Oscar! Will someone stop that woman from yelling Oscar? Oscar! Will someone please stop that woman from yelling Oscar? Thank you. The thing about this film is it looks to me like even though it may have been forgotten by most people and it's not mentioned in the same breath as a lot more famous musicals or even other dramatic films or comedic films of the time, but you watch shows like Laughing from the late 60s or It's Gary Shandling's Show or the Kentucky Fried Movie or what was called Aeroplane in the Northern Hemisphere and Flying High Down Here or Blazing Saddles. Right. When you talked about Gary Shandling with uh, what was his uh, the uh, what was the show? Not the Gary Shandling show, but the one he did after that was based on the talk show. Larry Sanders. Show. Larry Sanders. Yeah, yeah, right. The Larry Sanders show, because with Gary Shandling, it was about a show within a show. Yeah, it's Gary Shandling show, though. He was breaking the fourth wall and actually talking directly to the audience a lot, wasn't he? Sure. I mentioned that even though that the Looney Tunes, the Warner Brothers cartoons were, I guess, a contemporary with Hell's a Poppin'. And I mean, like my first thought about this film was this looks like a Warner Brothers cartoon mixed with the anarchy of the Marx Brothers. One thing that I thought this film had influenced on the Warner Brothers cartoons was the Duck and Muck cartoon. I don't know if either of you guys remember that one. That's the cartoon that was directed by Chuck Jones, came out about 12 years after Hell's a Poppin' was made. And this right. is this is the one where Daffy Duck starts out like as a musketeer and the backgrounds keep changing and all that his world keeps changing because there's an unseen animator who keeps doing horrible things to him and he's talking oh, yeah. fourth yeah. wall we, right. find, we find that it's bugs bunny saying there's a moment in the first 10 minutes of hell's a poppin where the writers and the director of the film within the film are walking across sets we get johnson and olsen walking through the sets and they're clear Clothes keep changing every time they walk across a set. And I reckon that's a direct influence on that duck and muck that came 12 years later. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so much in this film that is so influential, like for things so many years later. There's some aspects of Hell's a Poppin' that kind of remind me of a Woody Allen film. Oh, definitely. Something like you say, you talk about the fourth wall, like Purple Rose of Cairo is what I'm thinking of. Purple Rose of Cairo is like on the surface an influence because there's the moments where we get the characters on screen talking uh, like Shemp Howard in the projection booth. Hey, don't go away. Don't go away. Rewind this film, will you? What's the matter with you guys? Don't you know you can't talk to me and the audience? Well, we're doing it, aren't we? Yes, folks. <laughs> this is hell's a poppin'. <laughs> Come on, Louie, make it snappy. This is screwy. The actor's out there talking to me up here. Right. Or this is great line, which is also subversive 
of taking the piss out of characters in those 1940s musical where the pretty female lead heroine type character says, We Rands are disgustingly rich. As she's talking to the writers of the film while they're right. watching the film. And that seems like something to me out of, uh, say, Annie Hall, where the characters are talking to the audience and subverting their impressions of what these characters are like or something like Love and Death. 100% this film would be a Woody Allen favourite. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And for all the fact that what goes on here is so subversive and all over the place and things don't seem to make sense in a narrative sort of way, and yet there is a story. There's definitely a narrative. And we were talking a, a, a little bit about this before we started recording, guys, where you asked me about what I thought about The Holy Mountain, which I watched about a week ago, Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. And that's another film which years later, because the nature of its experimentalism, it looks on the surface like, hey, what's going on here? But by the time you get to the end, there's a story, there's a narrative. It's just done in Jodorowsky's way. I'm not saying that this is surreal as a Jodorowsky film, but it does have a lot of moments where you're thinking, hang on, what are they doing there? But by the end, you think, well, we have a film that set up its universe and it sort of made sense. Right. But just imagine having to ask audiences to just go along on this trip in 1941. Oh, yeah. It's not enough that you're presenting people with new content, but the way you're presenting that content the way you're, you know, you're flipping the content, the way one thing's falling into the next, falling into the next, falling into the next. And it's this chaotic, blissful, like you just have to go along with the ride. There's no breaks. I think what's interesting about it, and to be honest, uh, the kind of main issue I have with the film is, yes, it is super ahead of its time. And like you say, Tim, watching this in 1941 would have just been, your head would have exploded because it's just... (laughs) It brings all these kind of concepts and wacky non sequiturs and all kinds of stuff to the screen that, as we've been saying, have just filtered down through the years now. All this stuff is commonplace. You watch a sitcom now or it's doing stuff that Hell's a Poppin was probably one of the first things to ever do. So in in a lot of ways is so ahead of its time but the issue i have with it is that it's also very much of its time in Mm -hmm. particular respect to the humor for a start the the sort of visual gags and stuff like that so much but just a lot of it and a lot of I, i guess this is a problem i have with comedies from this period anyway is just a lot of the humor doesn't land for me and i'll be honest whilst there's a lot to admire here i did find it a bit of a slog to get through the whole thing yeah, I don't know. I, everything you're saying is true, but at the same time, it's so much of a relic of its right. time. I guess that's just me, though, because obviously, you know, you have a different opinion of this. Hey, Stinky, will you go on home? Stinky, will you go home? I'd make a couple of points there. I mean, this film is obviously satire. I'm not sure, but I'd say that this is possibly one of the earlier films that is basically taking a torch to how Hollywood films were made. And to satirise something, you need to live in that area. You need to wade in that pool. And then once you're in that pool, you piss in it. I mean, I think I made a similar sort of criticism when we did, like maybe in our first year of the show, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. I didn't find that film, apart from you know a handful of moments, I didn't really enjoy that. I didn't find it that funny. And you know, really, comedy is probably the most 
personal art form. It, you know, you can pretty much, people will either agree or not, whatever, about whether drama lands, whether cleverly crafted drama actually right. works. That's maybe a little bit more objective. But comedy is very much subjective. But what I think that this film does really well for me, and as I said, it has to work within the genre of the romantic comedy of the day. And this is the sort of thing that I know that Frank and Gilbert were always complaining about a film like, say, A Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers. They say all the Paramount films are a lot more anarchic, a lot more subversive. And then by the time they get to 1935, the films are still funny, but there's a lot more emphasis placed on the romance and the dull songs and the Marx Brothers are wanting to help the young couple in love. So those are some of the rules. You know, you get the love story of the two beautiful but dull lead characters. There's the big show. Let's put on a show at the end of the film that no one ever seemed to rehearse for the rest of the film. There's the comedic love story of the two best friends, which sort of is here. And there's the two guys who are always out to help the lovers, in this case, Olsen right. and Johnson. So those are the tropes of that period of films. And like, Tim, you were saying before, you're not necessarily a fan of musicals. I mean, look, I consider myself that I am a fan of older musicals. But like a few weeks ago, I was watching Anything Goes and Royal Wedding and they were slogs. They were genuinely unfunny and predictable all the way. And the song's were not that great. But this film, and it, once again, it is subjective. I did find genuinely funny because it took those tropes and it turned them on their heads. So there's, for instance, there's the moment where we get the dull song done by the romantic couple. There's a cottage hidden in the hills By a waterfall where stardust spills And songs bloom on the windowsills it's heaven for two. In the film, there's singing about domestic bliss that they could have, a beautiful house built for two, and then up on the screen, in breaking that fourth wall, acknowledging that it's a film, it says, Stinky Mellow, go home. And then they look at the screen and say, you're ruining our song. But that's this film's way of saying, yeah, those moments in the typical music are really very boring and not what you're here for. It's the uh, comedic couple who are the centre of this film, played by Martha Ray and Misha Auer, who we'll probably get to shortly. It's funny, Martha Ray, you know, I don't know if you recall Bernie, but actually people would know her more from being one of the witches on H.R. Puffin stuff in her later career. Oh, sure, yeah, no, I, I read that. Weirdly, we never got H.R. Puffin stuff over here in the UK. Ah, uh, uh, I see. Or at least I don't remember. I've got a feeling it might have been shown in the late 60s. I remember her doing Polydent commercials for dentures. Polydent presents Martha Ray. Movie star, denture wearer. Folks, I've used Polyden for years, but now there's something that cleans my dentures even better. It's fantastic. New extra strength Polyden. Watch it work on this tough lab stain. New extra strength Polyden has 50% more of a special stain remover. 50% more. Gets those stains clean, even in between. So take it from a big mouth. New Polyden Green gets tough stains clean with extra strength. <laughs> I gotta say, I, she was my favourite thing about this film. I thought she was stupendous. I thought she was absolutely fantastic. Now, what you were talking about, Morris, earlier about the satire of certain things, on the flip side of that, it's part of what kind of makes me mad is because when you see the infamous dance sequence, the Lindy Hop, 
What did you guys think about the way that the African-American performers were portrayed in this? Because to me, it was almost like an exaggerated uh, stereotype of almost like a cartoonish um, element of they're all just so happy-go-lucky and just kind of like, to me, it was almost like Daffy Duck, like, woohoo, woohoo. It fucking sucks, to be honest, but that's that's how Hollywood treated people of colour then, isn't it? So Exactly. Dancing is incredible. What they did is some of the most astounding moves, physical moves that I've ever seen. Throwing people over your shoulder and catching them or them standing straight up or sliding under people's legs. There's people that couldn't pull those moves off today. What really gets me actually and it really makes me infuriates me about this film as much as I love the film is that that segment is only one segment in the entire film yet it's one of the things that the film is known for the most and through doing research and looking at this film it was actually choreographed by Frank Manning and Frank Manning was one of the original Lindy Hoppers who actually were the group that were hired for both the Broadway production and the film they edited this in a way that it stands out that segment so that they could actually pull it out and pretend it wasn't even there so they could show the film in the southern parts of the United States. I did not know. Wow. Yeah, that's why it's only in one element there and they're not sprinkled throughout the film. Is that they're in, they're out. That's it. Both of you guys, have you seen A Day at the Races? Oh yeah. Okay. There's a similar segment at the end of that in a farm barnyard and that to me is really, really offensive. I didn't necessarily think that the Lindy Hop segment in Hell's a Poppin' is in the same league but in A Day at the Races the African Americans are really portrayed as racial stereotypes I didn't right. feel it quite the same way about Hell's a Poppin' Look what I tried to uh, elaborate on earlier was that guys like Fred Astaire and Gene, Gene Kelly were immortalized for their moves that Frank Manning to me he should be up there just as much as any other white dancers because he, he was a guy like their influence was completely paved over mm. because basically the Lindy Hop became the Jitterbug and the Jitterbug became the white dance just to have them recognized. And what's funny is that in doing research about this, Frank Manning, he wound up taking a 30 or 40 year job in the post office after this film. And he died when he was 85. But when he was 80, there was a dance group in New York City that recognized his contributions to dance. And they actually had him come out and he was still dancing in, a, I think, what was it, 85 different people when he was 85 for his 85th birthday. But this guy was the guy who was one of the originators of the Lindy Hop. For them, they had an opportunity to do the Broadway production and to do the film. How would they say no? They couldn't, hmm. you know, to be recognized, to be, you know, for what they did. But the way it was used and the way it was kind of under-recognized, to me, is kind of criminal. As you say, that's the history of American cinema, uh, certainly early American cinema. Uh, well, it's the history of America. It's the history of American music. I mean, what can we say? It's fucking awful. And I, I suppose, yeah. in a way, when you watch these films or you watch films from that period today, at least... <sighs> 
I don't know how to phrase it, in it, at least in a way, the fact that you can see that stuff, you can understand what was wrong about it and why it was wrong. I don't know. I was going to say we've come a long way since then, but I don't know whether we have. There's a point in there where they're peering in on them. They're watching the servants doing their thing in there like they're children, you know, like they're just, they're kind of like mom and dad are peeping in on what the kids are doing and the kids are in there getting up to no good. Wow, too bad they're not in the show. When they're actually standing at the door and they're kind of peeping in going, wow, you know, and they're like watching them play and dance and perform and all of that and play the instruments and everything and, like I said, it's great that they got the recognition to be put to yeah. film and, and to, to be put on stage. But then at the same time, to kind of have that kind of distorted or just presented in a way that was less than favorable, that's not good. It leads on to another difficult conversation as well about cancel culture in the wider sense in that because films of this period tended to treat minorities this way does that mean that in liking or appreciating the film for whatever reason you're in some way condoning that it's a really no because but no what, obviously you're not anyone in their right mind is not but i'm just saying no. it's uh, does it affect how you appreciate a piece of cinema or art or whatever even though it has these things which by any sensible human standards are reprehensible sure. in them, right? but the ability of these performers stands out above all no matter how yeah. it was presented or no matter how Absolutely. the attitudes were what those people did is what those people did and you cannot take that away from them i mean what did you think about that that whole dance sequence morris i loved it this had more energy and i think there was a contrast say like between that lindy hop dance sequence which was athletic and it was exciting and it was vibrant between any other say dance sequence in the movie and i mean there's some other great songs i sort of want to talk a little bit about a couple of the other songs in the movie because after all we are a musical film podcast i just found there was everything about that which i thought what are they doing there that's absolutely amazing and you know tried to find out some more stuff about lindy hop and its origins and there was what they, you know, they call the air step what people were doing i thought i couldn't do that in a billion years that was dangerous and it was breathtaking oh, yeah. and it was exciting i just loved every aspect of that but just what you mentioned there before tim about that segment being cut out so they could show the film in the south i had no idea and i find that terrifying oh yeah what's funny about it i'm not using this in a in the wrong way but when you see all the white actors dancing in the film when the couple is singing you know when we were talking earlier about that dull uh, other musical number everybody's all kind of cheek to cheek and they're very erudite and they're very flat I once had a vision of heaven and you were there I gazed at a sky full of starlight and you were there And then when you see that Lindy Hop number it's fucking savage and it's it's punk rock it's totally like you say so full of energy that's bottled up and then when you see the Caucasian uh, actors and the dancers and everything, it just seems like they're just so restrained. But once again, as I said before, if you're going to get in the wading pool of taking the piss out of films of the era that are like that, you have to do that so then you can make fun of it properly. Those other things, they're the tropes. Oh, yeah. But the contrast of it, though, to me was just, oh. Will you take those phony Hollywood Indians off the screen? Yeah, get them off of there. Oh, I can't stand it any longer. Get off. Get off. That's better. Now put on our picture. 
So I just want to mention a couple of other musical moments in the film. The songs in general were serviceable, but a couple of tunes that I really, really liked. One involved Martha Ray, and Bernie, you've already gone and said that Martha Ray was undoubtable highlight of the film that didn't involve the Lindy Hop anyway. She does a song called Watch the Birdie. Would you like to get your picture token? There may be a movie, a contract in it But come on, Jack, it'll only take a minute Watch the birdie, we'll take a can of camera shot Watch the birdie, come on and give it all you've got Watch the birdie, just look around and pick a spot and hold it Which, in a conventional Hollywood musical, one that wasn't like a satire and had been forgotten, this song would still be remembered today, I think so anyway. She absolutely owns this. Her character is sort of the best friend of the main gal, of the main love interest in the film. But once again, Martha Ray is the character that you really watch in this film. And I think that that is Olsen and Johnson's intention so far as... Oh, yeah. As far as this film goes. She's got a bulldozer of a personality. She's just full on in this. Like, she's just like, there's no way of getting around her. She's, she's just... <laughs> this song that she does and the setup, the film setup for it, I just found myself smiling the whole way through it. She's been cast off as the unattractive girl who the photographer at large on this property. He doesn't want to take a photo of her, so she steals his camera and she goes about and does this song, which, you know, doesn't push the narrative along, but that's fine because it's hell's a pop and anything can happen. And she's pretending to take people's photos and saying, singing this thing, watch a birdie. And I just found it a really, really catchy, fantastic number. And that song was written as most of the songs in the film were written by a songwriting team of Don Ray, who is apparently no relation to uh, Martha Ray and a fella called Gene DePaul. I just found that this song, if it had been in, well, you mentioned before, Singing in the Rain, if that song had found its way into a film that everyone knows and loves, it would be a beloved song of that film. But there was a song written for the film called Pigfoot Pete, which apparently did yep. make it into another film later on. But in a very, I don't know if you call it ironic or maybe appropriate for something like Elsa Pop. And Pigfoot Pete never made it into the film, but it was nominated for an Academy Award. We're out in Kansas City on one, two street. They say that there's a guy they call Pigfoot Pete. He plays piano by ear. And he plays all night for pig feet and beer. He's murdered on the 88. He's the guy that brought the boogie woogie up to date. He's got a cannon. I found the song on YouTube, gave it a listen, and maybe because it's a common thing of that day, we'd never get that happening now without copyrights and lawyers and all that sort of thing. But musically, it's almost, if not a complete ripoff of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Although, mind you, maybe I don't know what the lineage is. Maybe Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy stole from this. I don't know. I didn't bother to find out when, right. when that was written. But, you know, they were both wartime songs. Completely different lyric. Maybe there was something of the copyright issue, that, and that's why it never made it into the film. I love the ending, the Latin dance with Martha Ray. Then the conga bass, so you don't know what you've missed. It's the Cuban conga with the Yankee twist. You won't even mind if you need rehearsal. 
that musical number is great with all the uh, caballeros. That was great. That's the sort of musical number that you might get in another movie that had a let's put on a show type of theme. And that was really the big theme of so many musicals of the 30s oh, yeah. and the 40s. But what makes that whole segment special? I mean, the song, it's fine, it's adequate, but it's the visuals and it's the anarchy getting that guy from the car park who's looking after the car and is bored by the whole thing is just reading a comic book because Olsen and Johnson want to subvert the play they want to ruin the play which I'm not going to go into the reasons why here just watch the film but they bring this guy on stage to read his comic book under the lights there's all these things going on to wreck the stage musical but done in a way that I don't think any other Hollywood film of the time would do and coming back to the very beginning of the film you see the universal logo for the time and then it goes into this opening credits number where you see all these devils in hell and there's torture and whipping and and exposed flesh which I'm thinking hang on where were the Hays Code people that day I just could not imagine that exactly that segment showing up in a 1941 film it's pretty risque for a film of the time which makes me wonder was there other stuff that they wanted to put in that they couldn't because they knew it really wouldn't make its way through but that's to me a really exciting number and visually it's a great song you know what's interesting too fellas is I I've just thought about it for a second there's two other films that we've covered for the podcast that are very similar to this and if you think about it one's uh, the prairie home companion film yeah the garrison keeler film and believe it or not i'd say phantom of the paradise the let's put on a show aspect no just the fact that, that all this chaos that is going on in the behind the scenes where there's a live show going on and then the, and the fact that the audience is only is thinking that it's all part of the entertainment right and I mean, and also in the sense that, you know, where you've got Winslow, who's trying to bring down the show. What was that? So I think that that kind of trope of a show going on and while it's going on, it's some there's another aspect that's trying to dismantle it. I think that that's been seen in, in a lot of different films. Oh, yeah, that's been done hundreds and hundreds of times, hasn't it? Yeah, I would love to actually see somebody show a double of Hells of Poppin' and Phantom. I think that that would be amazing. They really work together. You mentioned Singing in the Rain before, and even if you think about the end of that film, and spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, but where it gets revealed behind the scenes that the Debbie Reynolds character is doing the singing voice for, um, I've forgotten the name of the actress, but the character is Lena Lamont. So once again chaos behind what looks to the audience like the smooth running of a show right or even you look at something like the producers as well you know who i used to be max bialis the king of broadway but now there's just something about this film that just really grabs you and not just for a historical artifact we have the ability today to pull off something like this you know in terms on the big screen i don't know if anybody would do it you know the bastard stepchildren of this film were a big thing throughout the 90s and the noughties and that whole scary movie, date movie, all these parody type things, which basically sort of thought that they were taking their influence directly from the Zucker Abrahams crew with oh, yeah. Kentucky Fried Movie and Airplane slash Flying High. But 
they're taking their cues from this film, to to be right. absolutely honest with you. And when you were talking about Daffy Duck, what really got me thinking again, too, and I never got to see a lot of it, but I saw a bit of it that really, I could see it as a, as a total direct influence, was, do you guys know when Warners did the Animaniacs? Yeah. Yeah, the Animaniacs cartoon. That's totally, like, because they were breaking fourth wall, and it was just going from one thing to the next, one thing to the next, with all the musical numbers. Like, that, that was almost totally like an animated version of House of Poppin'. Well, that, I mean, Warner Brothers, their entire time, that was their raison d'etre. I mean, we always tend to associate animation as being a kid's medium. I mean, oh, certainly up until The Simpsons and that sort of revived uh, animation for adults, but animation has always had stuff for adults, you know, never mind your Hanna-Barbera's or your Walt Disney right. cartoons, but the Warner Brothers were the big satirical animated house for grown-ups, and they were so clever and so anarchic, and that's why these have the spirit of, of each other. And yeah, the, the Warner Brothers cartoons started a dozen years before right. Hells of Poppin' was made, but I think they basically fed off each other, is, is what I'm saying. Bernie said that Mar- Martha Ray was his favorite character in the film. Who, who's yours, Morris? Oh, Martha Ray, without question. I wanted to actually, so unless you've got something else you want to say, I wanted to mention one more thing about Martha Ray. Go ahead. So I didn't really know that much about her. I mean, you mentioned the Puffin Stuff thing, and I had seen Puffin Stuff as a kid, but I didn't remember that that was her in it. So I read up some stuff about her, and her character in the film, as I said, is the best friend, the one who's not conventionally pretty. And apparently, like back in the day, her nickname was The Big mouth. Now, can you imagine getting away with that in 2021? It's pretty horrible. As a result of her look, she was always cast as the comedic best friend, which may have been quite fine for her. She maybe never had any aspirations to be the pretty girl lead. You know who she reminded me of, of her attitude and just the way she held herself was uh, Bette Midler. I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Uh, I mean, I said, I think at the start of this, that the way she sang and the way the expression on her face, she reminded me a lot of uh, Judy Garland. And that's why I I sort of, at first, was having to have a second look, thinking, oh, is that Judy Garland? But no. Um, And I I just sort of think that she's someone who really deserved a lot of respect. I mean, you listen to her singing voice, and she's amazing. Apparently, like, she had her own radio show for, you know, quite a few years before she did Hells of Pop and then had a a very short-lived TV show in the 50s when every star of comedy and musicals had their own TV show for a time. I'd love to see more credit being given to her talents, That a lot more acknowledgement. And the other, there was another guy in the film, Misha Auer. Get up, you fool. Hurry up, get up. You want they should find out I'm not a phony? But you are interested. But if they find out I'm not a phony, they are no longer amused. No longer amused, they are no longer interested. No longer interest, no longer money. No longer money. I'm just like you, Count Alexander Alexandrovich Alexandrovsky, a poor slob. Yeah, I was about to say, he was funny because every one of these musicals back in the day or comedies, they always had to have that one guy who acted like his shit didn't. And, you know, he just held himself, you know, with his nose up in the air. Like, there's always that one character who had to get his comeuppance by the comedic, like by the Marx Brothers or by Laurel and Hardy or, you know, or anybody like that. Pepe, I think that's his name. Yes. He was hilarious to me. Just seeing him getting chased around by Martha Ray and then him trying to come off as suave. And I just thought that was funny. Well, do you think that maybe his character's name was an influence on the creation of 
Pepe Le Pew in Warner Brothers, but it turned on its head there because Pepe Le Pew is the one who's always chasing the cat that he thinks is a skunk. And in here, it's the other way around. It's Martha Ray who's chasing him around. Actually, when you think about it, there were a couple of episodes um, of uh, the Pepe Le Pew cartoons where he was getting chased. So, I mean, yeah, it makes you wonder. <laughs> Last night, before we started recording, you asked me if I'd watched anything lately. And one, I didn't mention it. I was watching last night apparently what is like the only other film that Misha Auer is really well beloved for and about, like he made hundreds of films I guess IMDB list is insanely huge, but one film that he was really well known and loved for is My Man Godfrey. And once again, he's a character actor, so he's not the front and center of that film. But that is another film that, for a part of it, has a sense of anarchy and it's scripted very well. It's a very wordy film. Right. It didn't end as strongly as it started. It seemed like it was going to have something to say about the state, you know, the class system in America. But uh, it didn't quite end the way that I sort of hoped it would. But Misha Auer was, you know, he was funny, he was solid, but I think he had a much better turn in Hells of Poppin. Right. And I'll tell you who he reminded me of, and I don't know the actor's name, but he looked to me very much like the bartender in Casablanca, who is sort of like a bit of a comedy relief in that film. Do you remember that? No, I know the character, but I, just, I can't think of his name at the time. It's not Misha Auer, but I thought it was. Bernie, I was going to ask you, have you ever seen uh, Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone? Do you know, I bought the Blu-ray ages ago and I, I've never got around to watching it. So whilst I'm aware you, of it, I, I yeah, when I've you When it. you sit down with that, you're totally going to see the influence of Hells of Poppin'. Oh, okay. Big time. Right. Big yeah. time. I watched that during the week because you recommended it a month ago. It's definitely for the sense of we're not going to give you a narrative that you expect. I saw that as maybe a combination of Hells of Poppin' meets a raunchy version of Flash Gordon. And no, I've never seen Flash Flesh Gordon, so I can't compare it to that. But. No, but you can totally see what I'm talking about, though, the influence, right. right? The way they present the music numbers, and it's all done almost like Cab Calloway. It just seems like it's completely in its own world. It just throws convention to the wind. Did that film remind you at all, at least in look, of The American Astronaut? Because that's I kept getting that feeling the whole film through. No, The American Astronaut looked like that because it was after. Okay. I mean, The American Astronaut was after that, many years after Forbidden Zone. But yeah, that's the whole thing, is that whole kinetic, more like a comic book. And that's another thing, too, right, that gets me is like you referenced earlier how meta- I mean, nothing was meta in 1942. It just seems like that would, to me, Hells of Poppin was the first film or a really piece of media that I can think of that really did that. And, you know, and I think it's kind of funny how they had the guy on stage, like you say, reading the comic book where the whole thing almost seems like what he's reading in the book is actually what's going on in front of him. It just seems like another element of it. Hells of Poppin is certainly not the first film to break the fourth wall, not by a long stretch. I mean, the Marx Brothers were doing it all the time for the projection booth. I was watching a whole bunch of Buster Keaton films yeah. a few months oh, yeah, yeah. a few months ago, yeah. and there's this moment in the film called Was It Seven Days, where there's a moment where the the lead actress is sitting in a bathtub and the soap falls out of the bathtub, so she wants to reach out and get it, and the cameraman puts his hand in front of the lens so she can do it without her. her 
her breasts are being seen. Once she's recovered the soap, she looks back at the camera and gives him a smile of thank you. Breaking the fourth wall is like an old trick. And I expect that sort of thing had its origins in vaudeville. And it's just something that they brought to cinema as well. I just Googled what was the first film to break the fourth wall. And it's a silent film from 1918 called Men Who Have Made Love To Me, apparently, featuring Mary McLean. There's a point where she uh, interrupts the vignettes on screen to address the audience directly. So there you are, 1918, the first time on film, apparently. Wow. Crazy, isn't it? Men Who Made Love To Me. Is that a film that sort of got covered over and over and over again in sleazy 70s cinemas? Who was... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the mind boggles, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I think it had a slightly different meaning back then as well, didn't it? So any final thoughts? I mean, we've discussed the absurdity and we've sort of gone all over the place. I'm not 100% sure how much we've really conveyed about the film itself and just more about its spirit. But just go around the table. Is this a film you'd recommend? Okay, well, Bernie, I know you had misgivings with it. You know, I think if you're a film buff, if you've got an interest in cinema and the history of cinema, then there's a lot to recommend here. It's interesting, you know, like we've been saying over and over, it's it's ahead of its time. It, It does a lot of stuff which other things weren't even thinking of doing at the time. But for me personally, despite that, it's kind of I don't know I, I, it wasn't that satisfactory an experience maybe I was expecting a bit more yeah I mean I, I would recommend it but it's not one I'd be rushing back to check out again yeah man I, I love this film I get what Bernie's saying that it doesn't keep a pace I mean it, the pace is all over the place just like the film is you know in its themes and in its uh, and in what it goes about but I don't know there's just something about this film this, there's a real cheekiness to it we're, we're going down this road and we don't know where we're going and you might even wind up driving in a lake, but you're welcome to join us if you want. It just it does what it does. I saw this film the first time, watching the first 10 minutes of it, like Bernie, and it was just floored. And then all of a sudden, when it slowed down a bit, I'm thinking, oh, great, here we are going into some, you know, a snooze fest with musical, uh, whatever. But it just kept my interest the whole time because you never knew where it was going to go. It just got you invested in something with, okay, that's enough of that. Let's do something else. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's do something else. Oh, remember that guy with the plant? Well, here he comes walking in. Boom, boom, boom. You know, there's just a spark of creativity in it. It's just intriguing. I just really wanted to uh, recommend this film for the uh, podcast. This is a film I think I am going to keep coming back to. I was so grateful that you brought this up, Tim. And I'm pretty sure, though I can't remember which episode, but I'm sure that Gilbert and Frank had mentioned this film before. They would had to have. I mean, I found it genuinely funny. I mean, there's there's plenty to admire. We keep saying that it's ahead of its time and it's creative and it's anarchic and it's important. But putting all that aside, to me, it's just a funny film. Right. I remember for years, I used to always sort of think that the British were the great creators in the English language world of a sense of surreal humour. I mean, growing up and watching the Pythons and I, or listening to the Goons, I thought they'd invented this sort of thing. And maybe they certainly made it into an art form. But you watch this film and you watch the Marx Brothers and you watch the Warner Brothers cartoons and you think, well, you know, hang on, the Americans were certainly digging their heels into that sense of spirit. Yeah, this is really within my wheelhouse. I will be watching this on at least a yearly basis. I think I'll be coming back to this a lot. And one thing I forgot to add, 
bad, too. You know, how can you say no to anything with Shemp Howard in it? Legalize Shemp. So it's every time I see I get hot and cold at the same time. And this is the real Shemp, folks. No fake Shemp. No fake Shemp's in this one. <laughs> he's almost like pulling his stooge stuff, too, in this, where, you know, when he's got that lady up in the in the projection booth, and when she's getting mad at him, and you see him, he's almost just like, you know? Like, yeah, like, it's great. All right, well, there you go. For better or for worse, there are opinions on Hell's a Poppin', and it's on YouTube. Do a search. It's there for free. Hopefully, you've already watched it before you listen to this, so a lot of what we've spoken about makes some actual sense, but if you haven't, then... There's no reason not to. It's free. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's a really nice print, so it's not a scratchy old uh, piece of crap like you quite often find on YouTube. It looks beautiful. Look, I really hope that they can sort out any rights issues or something, because that really does deserve a DVD or Blu-ray-ish. I mean, it'd blow my mind if Criterion got this. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I'd love to see Criterion get their hands on that and actually get into the whole history of the dancer and everything that went in behind the scenes and everybody that was involved and just the whole history of it all because, you know, this film is packed with a lot of stuff in there that I'm not aware of. There's a lot there to digest. Look, Criterion went and released their edition of the Fred Astaire film Swing Time and I'll watch this any day over that. I mean, that's okay, although, mind you, you're talking about moments in film that you're thinking, what the fuck? There's a big one in Swing Time and I'm not going to go into it here, but... If you're a fan of old cinema, then you know it. There's another one, too, I was going to quickly mention, too, is there's an actor in there that is actually, he became a character actor in, in later years. And I don't know if you ever recognize this guy, Bernie, <laughs> Elisha Cook Jr. Oh, of course, Elisha Cook Jr. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was in a lot of westerns and he was in a lot of gangster films and just a lot of noirs you know, he's in. He's in yeah, uh, yeah. Kubrick's uh, The Killing, isn't he? He's in right. uh, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I love think Elisha he, Junior. I think one of the last films he ever did, too, was a Rob Zombie film. Oh, really? Oh, well. Yeah, before he passed, I think. But he was one of the, that's, that's one of the guys. That's to a career, showing up in a Rob Zombie film. <laughs> but there you go. Sure enough. Sure enough. <laughs> I'm trying to recall who it is that I thought it was. I mean, it wasn't Elisha Cook Jr. Elisha Cook Jr.'s facial expression reminded me so much. And there seems to be a big thing about this film with someone reminding me of someone else. But he reminded me of the actor, and I'm forgetting his name, but he was the voice of Piglet in the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. Uh, I think it's John Fiedler you're thinking. That's it. Yes. Elisha Cook Jr. reminded me of John Fiedler. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. John Fiedler is like a bald Elisha Cook Jr. Maybe they're family. Who knows? There you go, folks. There are our thoughts of Hell's a Pop and watch it or don't, but we recommend that you do. So little housekeeping. If you want to get in contact with us, email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. We have the Facebook group. Please feel free to join and bring up your own thoughts about any music-related film that you're digging on at the moment. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seeherepodcast. You can uh, follow us on Instagram. We are at seeherepodcast. Just a big thank you once again to all our friends over at Pantheon Podcast. Thanks for allowing us to be on their network. Over 70 podcasts in their uh, canon at the moment. 
moment. There'll be a podcast on any music-related topic that you're interested in for sure. So many thanks to them. Next month, I'm not going to reveal what we have going for next month yet because I've got the iron in two particular fires. All I will say is we have an interview going for next month. We have one definitely arranged and the other one we're still waiting for 100% confirmation. So it's just the order in which we do them. But I'll reveal it in the Facebook group. If you're not in the Facebook group, then we'll reveal it next time you download a podcast. Once again, look after each other. It's a rough world out there. Be nice to each other. And like hell's a poppin', it's real life. Anything can happen. Look after each other. See ya. Cheers. Bye. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.